So we are continuing right now in our series called, it's called Rescued. And what we're basically talking about is what it means for us to live as followers of Jesus in a world where we have been rescued from our sin and saved unto Jesus. Like, what does that mean? Today, um, we're looking at a passage of scripture. It's uh, Romans 12, 9 through 16, but we're going to look at it at the very end of the message. Really, it's a list. It's a list of things that we are supposed to do in order to love the world around us. Now, to be able to approach that passage right now, I want to look at it through an ethic that Jesus has in Matthew chapter 5. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is describing a problem that's taking place in the first century, and it's a 21st century problem too. It is the question of, who is my neighbor? Who am I really supposed to love? Surely, you're not saying that I'm supposed to love everybody equally. That's insane, right? I love my family more than I love you. You love your family more than you love someone else. We have hierarchies, if you will, of who we're supposed to love and how we're supposed to do that. And so today, Jesus is going to talk a little bit about that and correct the church that's in an error. And I think the error that is in the first century is the same error that we have today. We'll talk about that in a second. So let's go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. And it starts off like this. This is Jesus talking, and he's talking to his disciples. He says this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit. First of all, he says, you have heard that it was said. He didn't say, I said this. He didn't say that the Mosaic law mandates this or that this is what we're supposed to do. He said, this is what you're hearing right now. This is the teaching that's popular and available in the first century. Now, it's interesting because he starts off with something that everybody in the Jewish world would have been uh, familiar. Oh man, I forgot. Hey, just want to take a moment and welcome those of you who are online. You're like, where's the love, Pastor Mike? We're glad that you guys are here. We're so glad. Come on. Aren't we glad they're here? All right. Good. We're so glad you guys are here. So in the first century, somebody would have absolutely known this phrase right here, love your neighbor, right? Comes out of the Mosaic law. It's part of the Hebrew Shema, which is something that you would quote constantly and frequently as part of the faith tradition of Judaism. Hero Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so love your neighbor would have been familiar, but this other part that he tacks on here and hate your enemy is something that was changed. God gave the command that we are to love our neighbor. The Pharisees and religious people, as religious people often do, they take what God has done and they add to it. And this is what they added. They, they added the end, hate your enemy. And I think it's good for us and easy for us 2,000 years later to go, well, how silly and how wrong of them to do that. I want to talk about just cultural context that we live in right now, Right. Um, we just came through a giant season of COVID. It's almost like people are just kind of forgetting that and kind of moving on. That was hard. That was difficult as a culture. But I think not just the sicknesses and all of that kind of stuff were challenging, but what was challenging is that we went through a cultural dynamic that was very divisive in the United States. It wasn't like this necessarily around the world. It was just primarily the United States, maybe a little bit of England too. But the challenge was we just kind of polarized and we moved in different directions and we really were vocal about it and was terrible. For me, I don't really care what the world does because I think the community of faith, followers of Jesus are a counter-cultural movement inside the broader culture. So I'm not concerned with what the culture's doing, the world as a whole. I'm concerned about the church and what we do and how we live before the world. 
And one of the things I think is very important is, is that we don't just skate past what just happened and miss some of the principles and ideas. So I want to talk about that real quickly. I think grace got through the whole COVID season and up and down. And man, was it hard to lead at times. Everybody was frustrated. The, the, the church's voice was subtracted from culture. We weren't meeting. It was challenging. And we saw the net effect of that. People online got really mad and got really angry. And Christians were some of the maddest and angriest and loudest, right? And so what happened was, you know, as we were kind of navigating this as a church, um, I think we did really well. We heard from people that we did really well. Here's the reason why. Because I have this thing that basically is like the church has a very narrow focus. We have a very specific goal, right? And that is to solve a problem that the culture has. And that is that the culture does not have the gospel. The church's primary function is to make sure that Jesus is lifted up and that the gospel goes out. And people are trained to be able to do that, to be able to speak the language, to be able to do that, right? But for some reason, when everything started to fall apart and all of our comforts were taken away and all of our restrictions got on us, it was challenging for people. They were overwhelmed. And Christians just got super mad and super loud and super angry. And so as we begin to think about it, I started thinking like the church has a very specific purpose and so do you inside the church and outside the church, right? And so one of the reasons why I think we came through this well is because this is not the first time that I've experienced this. You guys don't know this because you don't know kind of like my job and life and how that works. But I have people all the time for the last 25 years who have come to me and said, hey, Pastor Mike, I think the church should be about this social issue. This social issue is the biggest social issue in the world right now. We need to address it. And I'm like, man, that you're right. That's a big, giant social issue. And you absolutely should address that. But we're not going to do that here as a church as a whole. That's not going to be what the church is going to become about. Why? Because when we come out of social issue, the gospel becomes secondary. And the gospel is always primary. Watch this. So important. Watch this. And if I were to do that, right, because many churches jumped into the political divides and jumped into those sides and it ripped them pieces, right? And the reason we didn't do that is not because that's not important. We didn't do that because it's important for us as Christians to realize we're Christians first. We're followers of Jesus before we are anything else that divides us. And so the church's goal, proclamation, is to say, I want the world to know my Jesus more than my party or my whatever, it's really important that we get this, right? Because it stops you from being so angry and so worried because we're not of the world. We're not concerned about everything that's happening there all the time. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And that's a difference for us. It's important for us to understand it. I had this guy a few years ago. He's like, listen, Pastor Mike, I made a ton of money in this multi-level marketing company. You know what that is, right? Like, like Amway, kind of like, you know, I get you, you get like 10 more people, we got a downline and then we're making piles of money, right? He's like, he's like, he's like, He's like, I made tons of money and I want to help. And he had a good heart. He's like, I want to help the people in the church because they're financially struggling. And I want to, I want to set them free financially like I've been set free. Can I lead a big class at the church about this? I'm like, no. And, and you know the reason why? You're like, thank goodness, right? But, but, like, but here's the reason why. Because it's about Jesus. I want you to be financially free. I want you to be responsible with your money. I want you to be blessed and have more than you need. But that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to exalt Jesus. And the Bible says that when he is lifted up, he will draw all men and women to him. This is what we do. This is your mission outside the church and our mission as a church. We are to lift him up. And so the Pharisees had just the opposite idea. So he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. This is from God. And this is from religious people. And hate your enemy. So let me just say, I get this. I really do. I understand this. Like, it's easy to love people that you love 
And the Pharisees define neighbor as people that you love. So love the people that you love, they would say. And then when you disagree with someone and you call them your enemy, you can hate them, that's fine. But that's a very fleshly response, right? That's, that's, that's us, and it's human, and I'm not judging anybody because we've all done something like some variation of this at some point in our life. We've been like, those people, or he, or she, or that church, I mean, whatever it was, we get really angry, they become our enemies, and we start hating on them. And it's easy to do. It was a first century problem, and it's a 21st century problem. But Jesus fundamentally says here that it's not a Christian problem. And what I mean by that is, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But, but Jesus, I tell, I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. Do you want to demonstrate that you are a child of heaven? Then you do these things. And we don't run around screaming at people and yelling at people. You know why? Because when you come and power up on me, just because of like the, just because of the brokenness in me, right? The brokenness in me, like growing up under a violent father, growing up in an abusive environment. When someone comes at me like that, I want to come back at you like that. It's like my human nature. It's my sinful nature. And many of you in the room are just like that. But he's like, that has to be disciplined out of your life because that's never the response of a follower of Jesus. When you come at me, I don't come back at you. Somewhere, I don't know when it was or who it was or how it started. I really have no idea of the origins of this, but somehow, we, <laughs> evangelical Christians decided somewhere that because culture wasn't going the way that we wanted to, like we could adopt a godfather approach. You hit me, I'll hit you twice as hard. <laughs> you know? Like just, you know, and I'm just like, that's not what we're supposed to do. I'm not, do- that's the only time I've ever done that. It's never going to happen again. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> So you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not what we're supposed to do. It's human. It's understandable. We're not going to condemn it, but we are going to look at it and go, that's not what I'm supposed to be. But love your enemies. So he's not saying you're not going to have enemies. He's just saying like, if you identify someone, you're like, that person's an enemy of mine. You've got to figure out how to love them. And I'm going to show you how to do that in a little while. And it has nothing to do with your feelings. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Do you know what happens when you start praying for people who are bad to you and you bless people who are bad to you? Number one, it may change them. But number two, it will absolutely change you. It's hard to hate somebody, walk around with all kinds of hatred when you're lifting them before the Lord and asking God's best for their life. It's almost impossible. So, so he, says, he says, pray for those who persecute you that you may be demonstrated to show that you are children of your father in heaven. But the Pharisees asked the question, and that is, who is my neighbor? This is the question that they asked. Who's my neighbor, right? Who's our neighbor? And the reason they were asking this question was because they wanted to reduce down this large population of people that we had to love, people that we love and people that we don't love. So they said, the people that you don't love, you don't have to love them. So what we're going to do is we're going to take love and we're going to shrink it down to just this one group of people that you're able to love. See, this is what legalism always does. If you are struggling with legalism, this is what you do. This is just it, right? And this is why it's so dangerous. It takes really big concepts and makes them small. It takes really small things and makes them really big. Right? Like, for example, it takes big things like love and makes them really, it's not a big deal. You don't have to love everybody. I mean, that's human. Like, you, you don't get frustrated. I get frustrated. You can hate them. No big deal. Right? But it takes this really, really big thing that God said, this is very important. Because the Bible actually says God is love. 
So we're not acting that way. We're not acting like God. So it takes big things and makes them really small. And then it takes really small things like how you dress. You know, pastors should dress a certain way. They should have a blue blazer and tan pants and dockers, right? Like, 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 like a Baptist minister, right? You know, so like, so just, like, just, I'm interested. It is. Anyway, but like, but like, but like, it's one of those things where you say, no, this, we're going to take something really small and we're going to make it really, really big. And this is ridiculous. And then taking the big things and making them really small actually destroys the wonderful and big things that God called us to do. And this is what the Pharisees did. And people were like, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense that that's the case. I'm going to hate the people that I don't love. And then I'm going to love the people that I love. And Jesus says, that's not what we do in the world. But I get it. It comes from this idea that we are living in a world that's falling apart. And let me give you my basic premise for almost everything that I do in my entire teaching time. And it's this. If this is where Jesus is, and you're walking away from Jesus... I believe that that will cause, maybe not right away, but eventually without a doubt, it will cause the increase of suffering and the increase of pain, a lack of peace, joylessness, and fearfulness. And the more that you walk away from Jesus, the more that you walk away from God, the more fearful, scared, worried, and whatever it is you're going to become. But then when you turn around, no matter where you are, even if you're on the edge Whenever you turn around and you start walking towards Jesus, immediately all of his benefits and blessings start coming your way. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to have a pain-free life because pain is not, suffering is not a religious question. It's a human condition. Everyone suffers, regardless of whether they believe or not. And so the difference is that we as Christians do not suffer as those who have no hope. We suffer with Jesus in such a way that he is with us through it all and in allows us to endure it and bear it for our good. The other thing about that is we never suffer without it being for a purpose of strengthening us, making us more like God, building endurance inside of us, or showing us patience. Never pray for patience. (laughs) It's horrible. So they wanted to love the people that they wanted to love, but we look at the world sometimes, and it's falling apart. And I just look at that, and I don't know if I'm just strange about this or whatever, but I'll have people come, they'll go, Pastor Mike, but look at all the stuff that's going on. I mean, there's war going on, there's social issues that need to be addressed. 100% you're right but I don't look at that and get overwhelmed by it. Do you know why? I think people who actually like built something, like if you've ever built a business, you're like an entrepreneur, you built something, I think you'll understand this. And that is when you build a business, you build it to solve some problem that people have. This is you do. You build it to solve a problem that someone has. And by the way, if you build a business that does not solve a problem that someone has, then your business will not last. Okay? So the church is very much the same way. Not a business, but it's here for the purpose of solving problems that people have. And those problems right now is a lack of gospel in a society that we live in. People are in mass in Florida, in mass in central Florida. What's all I'm concerned about central Florida. They're in mass walking away from Jesus. And that's going to lead to all kinds of destructiveness. And Christians look at that and they go, oh my gosh, the world's falling apart. And I go, no, 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 no. Look at all the opportunities we have. Why do you think the bent of grace is to help people take their next step toward Christ? We do that through teaching and helping people heal from the brokenness because they're way over here. And as soon as the pain level rises to a place where they're able not to bear it anymore, they are open to start walking in this direction. This is why I tell you all the time, I don't want you to bring the rock star here. I want you to bring the brokenhearted here. I want you to bring the one who's messed up, fearful, anxious, worried, skeptical, doesn't believe. And that that includes some of you in the room right now. I know that not everybody in the room is a Christian. I get that. But our heart is for you that you don't have to live a life that is constantly being destroyed, suffering by going through the same problem over and over and over again. God wants to set you free. 
He does, 100% wants to set you free, not just in this life, but in the life to come. That you may have eternal life with him, filled with joy and peace forever and ever and ever. So I think every time you look at the world, you go, man, look at how bad things are right now. Ask yourself the question, what problem can I solve right now with Jesus? And you know what that means? It's just sometimes as a mom, it means just being there for your kids when they hear something terrible. You can contextualize it and tell them that God's in control, that he's watching over them, that he's for them, that no suffering will ever come into their life that will not ultimately be for their good. When you're a business owner and your things are struggling, you're going through hardships, or you see some of your employees going through hardships, you get to step in and say, I'm not just here to use you as a commodity to build my little empire. I'm here to care for you and love you. Ask anybody on staff. That's what we do here at Grace. They're not just here to provide services for you. They're here for Kelly and I to care for them and to love them as well. When they fall down, we're there to pick them up. And that is gospel helpfulness. And that's what we're called to be. You are a change agent. The Bible calls you an ambassador for the sake of Christ. That means that you represent them here in the world and we cannot represent the world if we're screaming at them. Verse 45, that you may be children of your father in heaven. And look at what he says. And this is what causes us all kinds of tension. We're gonna look at King David in a second. It caused him tension too. That you may be children of your father in heaven. How do you demonstrate that you're children of your father in heaven? You pray for your enemies or you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. You don't write them off. You, there may be people that you can't stand. And I don't want to minimize that. And let me just also say this real quick. The counselor part of me, there may be somebody in your life because you have been in the relationship with them that is so dysfunctional and it is so messed up and they are so toxic that you may actually have to put that person out of your life for a season. It may happen. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. You're still called to love them and pray for them. You're still called to do things for them. But that doesn't mean that you have to be in relationship with them. That may be too damaging at this point. I cut my father out of my life for about six years. My brother cut him out for his rest of his life. After he saw him, after uh, 21 years old, my, my father never saw his grandchildren or met my, my, met my brother's wife. But in the last five years of my father's life, before he turned his heart to Jesus, I was his pastor and I showed him love and I showed him love. And I'm gonna show you how to do that in a minute. Showed him love, showed him love, showed him love. And eventually that overwhelmed him and the gospel penetrated his heart and he became a follower of Jesus. That's after the guy beat me and tore me apart. I know what it's like to have people in your life that are horrible. And sometimes you have to step away to get okay. But then we do good things. We'll talk about that in a second. You may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun, so he uses these two images, sun to rise and sends rain. These are two images that the Bible uses to describe blessing and hardship, blessing and hardship. The sun rising is blessing. The sending of rain is hardship. So he, this is God, causes his blessing on the evil people and the good. That's what we don't like. We look at that and we go, hold on a second. I get it because we, what we want is we want God to bless those who are good and to do bad things to those who are bad. But guys, that's just so ingrained in our minds, but you need to know that it was taught by our culture. That's not Christianity. That's actually karma and it's Buddhism. That's not Christian teaching at all. Christian teaching is so much deeper and more beautiful than that because you know why, why karma is bad? Why, why do they call karma a... What, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? You know, so so you, know, you know why they say that? Here's why, here's why. Because you get what you deserve and that feels good when everything's great, but what if you're not getting what you deserve or what if you're getting what you deserve because you deserve what you get? 
It has a double edge to it, and it's terrible. Here, Christian teaching is so different. It teaches us essentially that God will treat everyone the same. He's going to allow hardship in the lives of righteous people and unrighteous people, and he's going to bring blessing into those who are evil's life and to those who are good. And why does he do that? Because... Because he begins with the premise that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If he only blessed those who were good, he would bless no one. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And and you might be here and you go like, that's what I don't like. I want it to be more positive. You need to understand. It's not negative. It's a diagnosis of your condition, your spiritual condition. And just like the surgeon who comes in and says, I'm going to diagnose you with this problem. You don't go, man, thanks for judging me. You go, hey, man, thanks for telling me that. What's the treatment? Let's cut that thing out. Let's get aggressive. I want to live. And the Bible's saying the same thing. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not judgment to you. That's a condition you have. And God wants to heal you of that condition. And there's only one way that he does that, and that is through Jesus. And so we begin with this beautiful teaching that God sometimes does bless those who are evil, and he does so very clearly, the Bible says, because he wants to bring kindness and goodness into their life so that some may repent so that some may turn their heart away from their wickedness. Because he wishes that none would perish, but have eternal life in him. And then he allows hardships in the life of of Christians, even followers of, of Jesus who are righteous. Why? Because we live in a broken world and he's using all of that brokenness for the good because all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. All things, not just the good things, all things. Even the hardships, the loss of a job, the loss of a marriage, the loss of something. God brings all of this or allows all of this to happen, but it's hard sometimes, just intellectually to get it. King David in the Old Testament, my, one of my favorite characters. In Psalm 73, I came across this years ago, and it's one of my favorite things because it's been such an encouragement to me too. Psalm 73, King David's looking at people in his life who are wicked, but yet they're prosperous and everything's going well in their life. And he's asking the question, Why? Shouldn't good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, God? And this is what he finds. Verse three, for I envied the arrogant. Arrogant, for I envied the arrogant. Man, it's interesting here too. He says, I envied the arrogant. Whenever you envy someone, you tend to distort who they are. And here's how he does it. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Has anyone not had struggles in their life? Of course. No, but he's looking at people and he's going, why are they so blessed? They have prosperity. They have blessed, financial blessing. They have, uh, they have peace. They have, um, they have uh, authority in their life and they're wicked. They have no struggles. That's not true. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Maybe, but maybe not. Go to the next one. Verse five. They are free from the common human burdens. No one's free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Yes, they were. Therefore, pride is their necklace. So he just looks at people because, go back to that previous uh, verse. So he envied them. And when you envy someone and you look at someone and you say, man, they've just got it all together, you create a bad picture of who they are, a distorted picture of who they are. Everyone suffers, everyone struggles, no matter how much you think they don't. They do. But he was frustrated because he sees how arrogant and cocky they are because they have prosperity, even though they're wicked. And sometimes, you know, it's easy for us to look at our lives, especially especially falling into that comparison trap and think to ourselves, here it is. They're ahead of me. I should be ahead of them. I've done harder work. They've done less work. Why am I here and why are they there? I was having this conversation with somebody not too long ago. And I told him, I said, after 25 years of ministry, I've seen churches come, I've seen churches go. I've seen pastors come in the city and blow up and then just fall apart. And Grace, here's what we've done. 
We didn't do this. We just did this over time. And I told him, I said, listen, you're going to find in your life, because he's younger, I said, you're going to find in your life that there'll be times when people that you admire or you even think you're frustrated about or you don't, don't agree with what they're doing, that they're going to be way ahead of you. But you need to know all of that shifts your entire life. Sometimes people are ahead of you. Sometimes they're behind you. Sometimes they're ahead of you. Sometimes they're behind you. It just doesn't really matter. The comparison trap is terrible. But he's doing that. He's looking at them. He's going, hey, listen, they're prosperous. I'm not so prosperous. Even as a king, <laughs> they have no struggles. Their bodies and healthy, are healthy and strong. Go back to the next one. Five. They're free from common burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. In other words, they're able to puff their chest out and go, what is God to me? I'm blessed. I've got it all together. I got no problems. I've got no worries. They're prideful and arrogant. The Bible actually teaches us that God opposes the proud, that he doesn't walk with them, that he actively works against them. But David comes to a different conclusion here about just a little bit later in the same Psalm. He comes into the presence of the Lord. He's like, God, why? Why is this the case? Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Why did good people get bad things and bad people get good things? Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Till I came into the presence of the Lord. Then I understood their final destiny. And in some translations, it says, then I understood their final destruction. So he looks at that. He goes, they're ahead of me, God. And God goes, they're not ahead of you, David. They've never been ahead of you. Their circumstances look like it, but they've never been ahead of you. Verse 18, his conclusion, surely you place them on slippery ground. Slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. You need to know there are two destinations and you don't need to be discouraged when you see the world falling apart and people who are wicked thriving. Because one of two things will happen. Jesus says our goal, pray for them. Love them as best as you can because in the loving of that person, you may change that person. I guarantee you'll change yourself. But there's one of two things that will happen. That person who is your enemy will eventually get mercy from God. And even though that's frustrating, I'm sure at times, they'll get mercy from God, their sins will be forgiven, and you will have a relationship with them in heaven. Maybe not in this life, but maybe when God fixes everything. But if that mercy does not come, this is what waits for them. And this is what King David realized. Ruin, ruin awaits them. And so we don't need to be worried about how all things are going to work out in the end. We just need to be here now making sure that we're caring and loving for people. And that who is my neighbor is not this. It's as many people as we can possibly handle. It's people who need us. And Jesus jumps back into this uh, whole thing. Let's take a look at verse 46. Jesus jumps back into this and he says like, you know, who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? If you love those who love you, he says, what reward will you get? The answer is no, no reward. No, there's no reward for doing that. He says, even tax collectors doing that. That's, I mean, that's like the worst person in the first century. Everybody hated tax. I mean, do you love them now? I mean, come on, just like, like legitimately. But back then they really did not like them. He's like, loving people you love really isn't noble. There's nothing virtuous about that. Even the most terrible people among us do it. Verse 47, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? In other words, don't even pagan people do that. Godless people do the same thing that you do, how does that make your love distinct? And the answer is, it doesn't. It doesn't. So we're supposed to be different. Verse 48, so hard for people. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. 
So if you are a person who yells at yourself in your brain all the time, constantly screaming at yourself, you'll read stuff like this and just walk away condemned. Don't. That's not what this is, okay? This is reading this. Remember, I talked about this two weeks ago, interpretation challenges, reading words that mean a certain thing today that didn't mean the same thing back then? This is one of those cases. The phrase, be perfect, doesn't mean be flawless. What it means in here is it it says, be complete. And so at the end of this whole thing, he says, be perfect as my father is perfect. What does he mean? He says, be complete in the way that you deal with people. Remember, this is all regarding the verses that we just looked at about how we're supposed to love our enemies, how we're supposed to care for them. Be perfect, be complete, therefore, in your response to other people, just like your heavenly father is. Sometimes you're gonna have to bless someone who's wicked, just like our father does. And sometimes bad things are gonna happen in the life of somebody who is righteous, and you're still gonna have to be there for them. You're gonna love them in those ways. So now, we get to the Romans passage, finally, this list. It looks like a series of fortune cookies, just where they're all strung together. But these are very, very practical things. He sets the entire thing off with this one verse. Love must be sincere. Sincere. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil, cling to what's good. It makes sense that we're supposed to hate what's evil, right? What he means by that basically is don't engage with that which would, that will destroy you or the things that you love. When you say yes to uh, you know, a relationship, you say no to other relationships. And in doing that, you're protecting that relationship, right? When you say yes to your husband, say yes to your wife, you're saying, yes, I choose you. And therefore I choose no one else. And therefore anything else that gets in the way, I'm gonna hate that. I'm not gonna be a part of that. I'm gonna push myself away from that. So, The whole thing is put within the context of love must be sincere. Now, here's the problem for us. How do you sincerely love someone that is your enemy? Let's take a look at that because it has nothing to do with our feelings. How do we love our enemies sincerely? Well, number one, we don't focus on our emotions. We focus on our actions. So let me just explain this because some of us, and and, and we're going to talk about like the nature of how love is a little bit weird in our world. But but just real quickly, I want you to see this. If you wait, and this is what keeps people stuck all the time. If you wait until you feel the feeling to forgive someone, you will never forgive them. Listen, especially if what you're trying to forgive them for was some huge giant thing. Listen, the Bible in Proverbs says, uh, a wise man, a wise woman overlooks an offense. You're driving down I-4 and someone cuts you off. It's smart and wise to go, jerk, and move on, right? That's it. That's about as much energy as you should give it. That's it. That's all. Just not a whole lot, right? But... If somebody has ruined you emotionally, it's not so easy just to blow it off. And if you're waiting for the day where you'll wake up one day and go, hey, it no longer hurt me anymore that she left me and married someone else, that will never happen. And so you have a choice in front of you. You can either guide your life by your emotions and never be set free, or you can make choices that will set you free, right? And so what do those choices look like? It's these things that Paul puts together to show how we sincerely love people around us. Verse 10 says it like this, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Here it is, first fortune cookie, all right? Be devoted to one another. Wouldn't it be great if it said, your love is coming soon? It's just not like some random fortune cookie thing. Okay, so be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above. Now, let me tell you what is the enemy of being devoted to one another is this phrase right here in love. And here's the reason why. We have a romantic view of love in our culture. By the way, you might think that that's just how the world sees love. It's not. 
There are other cultures that have no concept of love like we have love concept, right? That it's all about our feelings, it's about our emotions. Well, I mean, Valentine's Day is just one of the worst ever. I just, just, we agreed early on, my wife, she's so wonderful. She's so perfect for me. She agreed, like, that's just a corporate holiday. I'm like, I freaking love you so much right now. I just love you. Just so good. I never have to worry about it. So, so, so wonderful. But the reason for it, the reason why it's so weird is because it's like this weird manipulation of our emotions. Most of us think, and we say this, by the way, we say this. We say, I love you, but I'm not in love with you anymore. What are we saying when we say that? We're saying, bye-bye now, right? That's what we're saying. Be devoted to one another in love. But watch this. If we're in love in this way, like we have this tender, amazing, always awesome, passionate emotions. Listen, if you've been married for more than 30 days, you know that love goes, the feelings of love go, and the feelings of love come. And I've been married for 30 years, almost 30 years. And there's whole seasons, even in good marriages, where you're like, I don't like you a whole lot right now. But you know what he says? That doesn't matter because you are devoted to one another. The feelings are going to come and go. And you really honestly can't have a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot of choice to that. Feelings just come and go. But you can be devoted to one another in love. You can honor one another above yourselves. What if to honor means to lift up? What if every interaction you have with your spouse or somebody who is an enemy or somebody who is just, you know, a person you meet in the line at the grocery store, and every single conversation that you have with someone, you just lifted them up a little bit. I'm not talking about walking around with a smile on your face, being candied all the time. I'm talking about being real and sometimes even saying hard things, but you do it for the sake of building someone up. The goal always is, I want to honor you. I want to build you up. I want you to be more in this conversation than, than you were before I had a conversation with you. What if you were that kind of person? How would that change your relationships? Well, I'm telling you right now, it would alter all of your relationships. The people who are your enemies would struggle to figure out why they hate you so much. And sometimes people just hate you for no reason. That's on them, not on you. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourself. Second one here, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Make sure you take the temperature of your spiritual life frequently. Am I walking with God still? Am I continuing to be engaged with him? Am I devoted to him? Look at this next one. It's like, it's, it's everything. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. This is the hardest one for us. Be patient in affliction. I don't love it. I don't love it when affliction comes. No one does. But our job in that moment is to be patient with it. Why? Because God is building something in us and through us in affliction. And the only way that we're going to see that is by being faithful in prayer and engaging with God, saying, God, I need you to explain this to me. And you know what? It's almost like, being joyful in hope will be the result of all of that. Look at verse 13. Grace is killing this again. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This is big, this is, this is big hearted generosity. You guys do this. I don't know if you know this or not. I mean, how could you know this, right? But unless you're like on a small team of people who actually help make this happen. But, but, there, but we have people come to the church all the time. People who are part of our church and not part of our church. But the Bible always gives a very, very clear priority. It says share with Lord's people. In other passages, it says... Um, do good to everyone, but first to the household of faith, right? So the priority is always us, right? It is followers of Jesus. Share with the Lord's people. In other words, give what you can give who are in need. People come to the church all the time. And listen, here's the beautiful thing. We have never, ever had to say no to anyone who has come to the church with like a legitimate need. Like if you come, you're like, I need Disney tickets. I'm not gonna give that. We're not gonna do that for you, right? You're like, I just need a pass. 
just it'll help me with my life. We're not going to do it. But if you, if you came and you're like, I don't have enough food for this week or this month. I don't have enough. I don't, my car's about to be repossessed. Only way to get to work. You know, I don't have electricity. They're about to turn off. If, if every single person that comes to the church for those needs, we take care of those needs. We don't send them on. You know why? Because we have it. We're able to do that because of your big-hearted generosity. And people, that makes a difference in their life. I've had numerous people afterwards come and say, I want to be part of this church because you helped me. Not because they're going to like start becoming a part of the church to get more and more and more. Because the Bible tells us we're supposed to bear our own load. But when you can't, the church is there to pick you up. Share what you have with the Lord's people who are in need. And then this practice hospitality. Hey, guys. Your best friends may be in the room right now and you just have not met them. Make sure that you get in a small group. Get connected with people. Don't just come and hear the lecture. I mean, it's awesome. (laughs) But it's not enough. You have to be connected to other people. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Just imagine. Every relationship that you have, when he is difficult, you bless when she is difficult, you bless. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Be the total friend. When someone's going through great times, celebrate that with them, man. Be on their side. I'm so great God's pouring out blessing on your life right now. I'm so happy for you. And then when they mourn, be with them in the middle of their mourning. Do it. When I was a therapist, before I was a, before I was a counselor, before I was a pastor, I would come home and I could never tell my wife about the content of the conversations because of confidentiality, of course. But I would come home and I'd have these two responses. And these will be the same responses that you have too when you sit with people who mourn. And I come home and I'd say, Kelly, I was doing marriage counseling with this guy and he was such a, just not on track. And he said this thing. And I was like, oh, that's so hideous. And the Lord was like, you've said that to your wife before. And I just come home and I'm like, I just can't believe, you know, I just heard what he said and I'm just, I'm sorry that I've, I've said that before. I'm, I just repent before you. And then there are times so I come home and I'd just be like, we have no problems. Like our life is just blessed. Like it's charmed. We don't live through the things that people live through that are struggling around you right now. Be with those who mourn. Not only will it change them, it will 100% change you. And then he ends the whole thing here with a great summary. Live in harmony with one another. So we're supposed to love really, really well. That means that we're not supposed to be on the internet just trolling around, being angry, leaving bad comments and disliking things. Why? Because that doesn't make us harmonious with the world. You are God's God's workmanship in this world. You're his ambassador in this world. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people in low position. This whole thing over the last three weeks has been in the scripture passage all about us being humble so that we are strong for the Lord in the world, our witness. And listen, I've said it before. Because some of you, like me, like I'm naturally humility just doesn't sound appealing to me. Strength of God sounds wonderful, but humility doesn't sound great until you know the definition. The definition of humility is strength restrained, power restrained. In other words, you can't actually be humble unless you're first powerful. Find your strength in the Lord, walk in that strength. And then when you want to lash out, discipline your heart and mind because it's not the path of God. We want to be children of our Father. Live like children of our Father. Amen? Jesus, we do come before you right now and just acknowledge that we have not always done that. 
I have not always done that, Lord. And so we ask right now that you would help us to discipline our hearts so we truly can love and deal with those people who are hard and difficult in our life. Lord, help us to bless those around us. Help us to honor those around us. Help us lift up other people around us, God. Lord, your word last week told us that we are to consider others better than ourselves. And so, Father, we just ask that you would do these things because we want our witness to be a good witness in the world. We want other people, even those in the room who don't yet believe, to see, God, that we, we're different because you're different, because you offer something different to the world. We love you, Jesus. Thanks for changing us and making us more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.